the Standing Orders podcast. Welcome to this latest edition of the Standing Orders podcast with me, Dr. Thomas Foreman, and my co-host, the Emeritus Mayor Sue Lawn. Good morning, Sue. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. How are you? I wasn't uh, going to say morning or afternoon. I was just going to say, hi, Thomas. And now you put it out there that it's morning. I'm very well. And how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I think we've just done that. <laughs> I'm just... No. What, what are you looking for? <laughs> I'm looking to turn my video off. Oh, no, don't do that. That's better. Yes, no, if you're off, <laughs> I'm off. <laughs> it's, it's strange. I was just going to say, it's the first time that we've had a chat in a long, long time that we've been face-to-face. I know. And, and, and it's, cut me off. it's strange because to start with, I thought it would feel more normal to see you no, on the screen. Really strange. But then I realised, no, it, it's not normal at all. Um, and so I, I shut off my Is camera. That, am I taking that as a compliment? Or an insult? <laughs> oh. No, your face is just okay, incredibly I'll just distracting. Go... <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go with the insult. And okay. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Well, I think everything I've listened to, everyone has always started with, well, what a week it's been. And it has been a, uh, a hell of a week in, in politics um, with the government reshuffle and the exit of Suella, and the insertion of Lord Cameron into the cabinet as uh, foreign secretary. And how do you feel about that? Well, I'm just lost for words, and that's a really good thing to be on the podcast, isn't it? Absolutely. But no, I just, every time that you think that, you know, we're getting back to the good old English way of politics then along comes something else that just makes you think, what on earth is going on? I just, I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to enlighten me as to how this is, is possible that somebody who's not been elected can actually be the foreign minister. How can he stand up in in the House of Commons and relay to the government and the oppositions as to how, you know, things are doing. And what is that, does this mean that there isn't anybody in government who was capable of taking on the role? Um, I, I think it's, I mean, I'm no, I'm no great analyst of these things. Oh, but um, you are, you are. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I don't think you will be standing up in the, in the House of Commons. Um, because he can't, because he's a lord, no. and lords aren't allowed to stand in, in up in the Commons and be questioned. So um, there will be someone, I suspect, who will stand up in the Commons and provide an update, but it won't be David Cameron. Um, it, it so will does probably... this mean that he can never be answerable to to um, the M- the MPs as to? the reasons why he should make the decisions that he takes. Yeah, I and mean... just make a decision? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, obviously, it's normally um, collective decision-making in terms of the Cabinet. Um, so MPs certainly will be able to hold like the Prime Minister to account through Prime Minister's questions. There will be a mechanism, um, there will be ministers that obviously answer questions in the House of Commons about... Um, Kind of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office 
and uh-huh. will be able to kind of provide the updates and, and the information as required and be scrutinised on them. But David Cameron will likely be doing it from the Lords and the Lords will then be scrutinising um, him and what the Foreign and Commonwealth Office is doing because he is in he is in Parliament, he's just not in the House of Commons, he's in the House of Lords. And although it's relatively, I think, unusual But now, he wasn't in the House of Lords, was he? No, he, he's he, just, he just got in. He wasn't, but um, he he was create he was made a peer specifically for this. So uh-huh. he, he wasn't a peer, but upon being appointed, he he became a peer on the day, and so um, you just couldn't write it, could you? So well, does it, this mean? Does this now mean that if there's going to be if if for the health minister, education minister, um, you know? Anybody who's of any significance in the cabinet, you can just appoint someone to be a peer, and yeah. we, we could bring is Hesselstein still alive? You yeah. know, you, you could bring you could you could just bring back the old school and make them all lords. Well, half of them are lords, and um, and start have a whole cabinet. I mean, I, I, of I, I lords. Yeah, you, this is you, a takeover. <laughs> is taking over what Guy Fox couldn't do. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess if you unpack it a bit, so it's it's not, this isn't unheard of. I mean, I, I believe that the uh, new Labour government um, in the early 2000s actually had quite a few um, people who were lords who were ministers. But uh, for think... significant, insignificant positions? I mean, I don't think any of them were foreign so. secretary, no. But no. previously, this has happened over, well, since we've had a parliament. It isn't uncommon for this to have happened. The only person who, I'm not sure, was it Macmillan who resigned as a peer to serve as prime minister? It was someone like that who, who did that in the, I want to say, 50s, 60s, 60s. Mm. something around there um, I think he resigned as a peer to become Prime Minister which obviously you would have to because being Prime Minister from the Lords wouldn't really work but well, it used to be common I mean, never say used, never it used to be really common to appoint from the Lords to ministerial posts it's just because we haven't done it for some time and because David Cameron obviously being a past Prime Minister you don't often see past Prime Ministers taking on roles from the Lords in in cabinets um, because, well, it just hasn't really happened. I mean, there have been plenty of parliamentarians who have stayed on, like Ted Heath did and like Margaret Thatcher did and like, obviously, you know, Theresa May has. Um, Mm. And so they often stay in kind of parliament for long periods of time. Um, But actually to, to be made a Lord and hold one of the... I think you can call it great officers of state. You know, it's not like he's Home Secretary or Chancellor, um, but Foreign Secretary still, you know, high up enough to be one of the great officers. I think it's one of the four. Um, so, yeah, it is It is unusual. And I'm not entirely... I mean, I think you and I message back and forth on this. I'm not 100% sure what the reason behind it was. I mean, I think when you have... Uh, kind of a prime minister who's maybe a year away from an election and you'll be better at kind of understanding the conservative mind than I. Um, You know, is it because it's a bit of continuity that, you know, it's kind of like, I guess I always think when you have 
and you'll probably have more experience of this than me as well. Um, when you have an, like, an ex-lover and you look back <laughs> 10 years after and you think, you know, actually, they weren't so bad. I can only really remember the good points. And I wonder whether that's how it is with David Cameron, whether, they, whether he thinks, like, you know, people after kind of like the calamity that has been, you know, Liz Truss and, and Boris Johnson and to an extent Theresa May, although I think increasingly people are having more and more sympathy with her. Um, you then look back and you think, well, David Cameron managed to hold a coalition government together. He managed to do all of these kind of things and he left before Brexit got toxic, basically the day after. Um, and so therefore he's kind of tainting some people's eyes over Brexit. I think there are some people who are still arguing over kind of Libya and Syria um, and about his roles and, and what we did and, and obviously didn't do. Um, but I think, you know, he's kind of banking on the fact that people look back and think David Cameron is a safe pair of hands. There were no massive issues and he's kind of trusted by people. And so he's a good continuity candidate and it's likely he would have made it into the Lords anyway. So so why not now? Well, yes, he, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that he wasn't already there. But no, I and I understand you know, everything that you're saying. But to me, it it looks like Rishi has looked and thought, I can't see anybody in this government who is capable of taking the role and and turning it around and 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 doing some good for the Conservatives and the country. Um, I just, I just would, if I had been elected as an MP, <laughs> I would be sitting thinking, <laughs> what an insult. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> to, go, to go, to go and, um, but it is an insult to, to go and find somebody who's not even elected. He's not even an MP. Um, he, he did get elected and he did, in my opinion, he did a fine job. Um, he lost my respect the day that he resigned whenever he didn't get what he wanted in Brexit. If he didn't want that result in Brexit, he should have um, you know, been aware of how the people were thinking. And, um, and before he went to the country, he, he should have uh, been you know, sure that leave it until the last six months or something of his, of his term in, in office, but to, to then turn around and resign the next morning everything's in total chaos was to me was just so yeah I, unbelievable i guess i kind of but up until then he did have i had a lot of respect for him i thought he did a fantastic job and he was a real you know he was he, he did a lot a lot of good for this country I, but um i don't know that this is the right thing to do you know and i know that he he will do i suppose after all that i yeah he probably will do a good job but it's just, you know, you're trying to get the, never mind the country, you're trying to get the Conservatives back on track, um, the supporters back on track. And, um, you know, you, you come up with this idea of, of doing something like this. And I just don't see that but that was the way think, to get support I mean, again. I think the Conservative Party, when, when you have the debates that are going on at the moment um, about migration and about small boats, I think mm -hmm. there's a big concern that the Conservative Party are kind of lurching towards the right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think David Cameron is an appointment that kind of makes it a more centralist kind of... Um, it's a more centralist appointment than you, than you might have expected. Yeah, but so you're, you're saying all of that. But David Cameron wasn't... We, we never had this kind of... Um, 
what's the word, um, migration. Well, I mean, we've always had migration. To the extreme, not I to mean, the extreme that we have now. Or well, had. I'm, I'm not even sure it's that that big. Like, to, how can I? Okay, so we we kind of covered this in one of the previous kind of mm. episodes. I mean, my my view with the with the appointment of David Cameron is he he is at least experienced in foreign affairs. He's mm. very well versed in American politics, which I think with the upcoming um, presidential election you know, we will need, um, and we'll need someone who will be able to, with everything that's going on with, you know, um, Israel and, and Gaza and yes, with the yeah. Ukraine and, and Russia, we need someone experienced. And he probably has more experience than anyone else that's likely to come forward. And he has a much better understanding of the American dynamic, and he has a much better understanding of Europe. And he is perhaps not university liked but I think more trusted in Europe than some of the other appointments could have been um, I think he did struggle you know there was a bit of struggle with with migration it's not something that is new I don't think the migration numbers even now are particularly kind of big I think it's something that is pushed forward by the government as a, a bit of a diversion to other things that are happening that people are focused on you know a few inflatable boats coming across from France I don't think that actually it is as big of an issue as we are led to believe. I think that decisions have been made to amplify the impact, whereas actually I don't think it is that great. Um, Do you but really I think, think so? Yeah, I, I think I, that you might just get some comments back on that one. <laughs> Maybe. Watch and, this and space. Actually, you know, I, I mean, I, I just, I see what's happening in, in other countries. I see what's happening in the world. Um, and I think what I said, you know, a, f a few weeks ago when we did the podcast on it, that the world needs to change. And actually, there are countries taking a far greater amount of, of migrants and refugees than the UK is. And I think our economy needs it. I think our economy needs skilled workers, but it also needs unskilled workers. I think there's a balance. And I think if we have, you know, as many people undocumented in the UK at the moment as um, we all seem to be told that there is, I think that that's one creating a, a fertile environment for exploitation and you will find people who are so terrified of going to the police because they'll be deported, they will put up with any type of work in any type of condition but and that is making people but that's really not acceptable. vulnerable. No it's mm. not, but then you have to balance that against, you know, people won't come forward because they're afraid of deportation. So they are accepting, you know, conditions and work mm -hmm. and things which are completely exploitative and completely illegal. Um, whereas the alternative is to, which I would, I would want to do, is to regularise them and to say, actually, we will award, you know, settled status to these people. We will record what they're doing. We will kind of regularise the, the taxation, their working conditions and everything else. And actually, as long as they keep their kind of keep their noses clean, you know, don't commit any serious crimes, etc., um, then actually they won't be deported. And and if you know you have people that do commit serious crimes, then fine, deport them. Um, mm. But actually, you need to regularise them first, and and not make them terrified of deportation as soon mm. as they report yeah. activities which we you know no civilised country would want. So I, yeah, and I I totally I, I agree with that. But I think, and I think that we do need to seriously speed up the um, the process that that says, you know, who can stay and who who should go. 
but um but as well you know we we can't get on a plane or if we were if we were to get on a small boat and turn up in um numerous countries you know um you, even just to get into the last holiday that we went on we had to fill in a, in a visa um you know explaining where we were staying how much money we were bringing mm-hmm. in all, all bits and pieces like that uh, if i turned up on a little boat i don't think that i would have been except i, I wouldn't have got obviously you you can do it because there's certain areas of the coastline that you you can you know get through and and nobody's going to to track you down but and and it's the same and you know people you know they're saying they're coming through um you know calais and and places like that but it's been happening on the north norfolk coast as well you know they're coming through but you've got to be pretty desperate to try to cross that that um that horrendous waters, you know, in especially at time in the winter time, um, never mind in the summertime. So, so that side of it, we we have got to seriously sort out. But you have to take back control of the borders. You, oh, don't people use that term. People, don't people, no, people are serious, control. but we do. <laughs> people are welcome to come to this country. We are crying out in the hospitals. They are crying out for nurses. They're going all over the world trying to get nurses to come and doctors to come to this country. So, and and in other, you know, um, employment, the, you know, they're crying out for those people to come in. So, if the people that are coming on the small boats have got those qualifications, all they have to do is apply for it. All they have to do is is see, you know, where the recruitment for for those special. Um, positions are and apply and they'll, they'll be getting they'll, yeah. you know, they will get that position but I, so but I mean, you know and again you, you know you, you to me and I know this is something that's going to be really controversial in what I'm saying but we have taken so many young men into this country over the last three to four years I don't understand if they and I, I totally appreciate, you know, people are fleeing because their lives are, they feel their lives are threatened, but your country is only going to survive any invasions or intimidations that's happening. If you stand up and, and, and fight the cause, you know, you, you cannot run away from it. You're leaving more vulnerable people behind to um you know to to fight that battle to get your country back to what it was it's um you know as far as i i'm aware maybe we just don't get it reported anymore but isis had had long until the israel situation isis hadn't been heard of for a long time in afghanistan that you know they walked back in again um without any issues um, as soon as the, the UK and, and the Americans moved out. Yeah. So there wasn't any, you know, issues there. But, um, you know, but all these young men, they all fleed their countries because th- they felt their lives were threatened. I mean, well, you know, you need to stand up and fight for your country as opposed to, <laughs> to run away from it. OK, I, I mean, I, I guess looking at... Um... Gosh, so, where did we start off with? This is I, all because yeah, of Cameron. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Look, this is already... See what he called. started already. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, just touching on, on a couple of those things, I think you will always get young men coming first because they're the most able to well, work. Well, come by passport. Um, come with a passport. 
you know, and they, they come to work, they then send money back and then bring their family to join them. Um, that's always been the traditional method of, of doing things. Obviously, with things like Ukraine, where men have been banned from um, leaving between when they're yeah. of a certain age and have certain health conditions, although I understand that 20,000 perhaps have, have escaped illegally or, or potentially. Yeah, but more I, than that. There's, there's more than that that stayed and fought. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the Ukrainian armed forces measures hundreds of thousands mm. um, now. But I think when you're looking at, like, Afghanistan, that was a policy failure, like, pure and simple, in my eyes. And, and equally, a lot of countries where we have involved ourselves and then basically yeah. when we have grown fatigued, we have withdrawn from those countries and allowed, uh, you know, organisations like the Taliban to come back. Well, by all accounts, I suspect the Taliban coming back in at that time and it being so coordinated um, means that there had been discussions long in advance with the Taliban that this was going to happen. It's just we fudged it. So yeah. I, I, I But saying that, say, go, just going back to you know, migration, we brought just last week, I think it was, but it could have been the week before, uh, a whole plane, a whole flight came through with people who we should have brought out Absolutely. Before we, um, before. So, so that side of things, you know, totally welcome. You know, they, you know, they deserve their lives really were at risk and uh, they deserve to be, you know, to be cared for and, and show our appreciation for what they did whenever our troops were over there. Um, that side of it, totally agree with, but I'm sorry to pay, um, to pay the people traffickers thousands and thousands of pounds and risk lives of children and yeah but that's um, because there's no other options so like if wrong. you create like safer options for people that in their home countries they can apply for asylum or in the first safe country they come to they can apply for asylum in the uk then if you can make safe and legal routes for them to come here other than they land on the shores and that's pretty much it you know but we don't want to do that we don't want to create do you know centres in in countries that they'll first arrive in for them to apply? You know, instead we would rather put as many obstacles in the way as possible up to the point they land on the beaches and then vilify them. So I think but, you know you you have to you have to basically take the market away from the people traffickers, which is by creating the ability for people to apply and be accepted to come here. And you know they were saying one one of the best things for them to do perhaps with. Um, in terms of migration is instead of you know just trying to and touching on the the supreme court's decision um which i, I still don't really understand why rishi sunak is saying we're going to create laws to prevent foreign courts from being able to block us when it was a uk court but anyway you know i i think what would have been a much better option is for you know and this is something that i i think has been kind of muted um informally um, would have been for Rishi to have said, well, OK, for every one person that we send to Rwanda, which I completely disagree with anyway, but for every one person we do that, we will take two people who have gone through the asylum seek system correctly yeah. and we yeah. will take them so that actually people then see that it is better yeah, for them to have mm -hmm. come the, the legal routes mm -hmm. across and to take refugees like that for every one person we'll stick on a plane, we'll accept two or three people like who come the, the, the proper way, who are documented. Um, and actually, that that's the best way of trying to force people into the legal routes as opposed to the illegal routes. But instead, but, we just stick everyone on the plane. 
No, but the thing was, the reason why they picked Rwanda was because there's something like 14, 15 different countries who send refugees, send the, you know, the uh, the ones who, who go into their countries legally, they send them to Rwanda. Yeah, so, there have been you a know, few. So it's, but again, I, I just, sorry, I don't want to get kind of no. caught up on, on this, yeah, but, I, but I kind of think that there is, and Rwanda actually does have a, does have a need for for more people to undertake the work that's there. But so do we, you know, so does Italy, so does India, you know, all of these countries, we, we all need to be attracting people. But I think we, we just, we need to get used to the idea that migration actually isn't as bad as we all make out. No, and I, I don't think anybody, the, there won't be anybody who, nobody I know, who would stand up and say, no, you, you can't let people who are fully qualified, doctors, nurses, um, you know, um, you know, teaching all, you know, all the other um, career pathways that professional people have taken. And you, nobody will ever say that we should not let them come in. But you have to do it the legal way. You have to apply. That's what we have to do. We have to, to sort out the system, make the system work more to the benefits of the NHS and, and all the other industries that need these, these people. Make it work so faster. Um, and and even, you know, even the, the young men that, been, that have come over from Ukraine for one reason or another, um, I, I can't... I, I, I can't remember what... Um, the person I know, somebody who has got um, a Ukrainian family staying in one of their um, their uh, houses, and, um, and the husband has has recently come over, but he's fully qualified in some. I'm not sure whether it's mechanical or something, but the qualifications that he's got isn't recognised in this country. Yeah. So he can't work in that um, that career that he he's taken. So he's fully qualified for it. And I know that there is, you know, that I can't. I'm sorry, I can't remember what his uh, profession was, but I know that there was a shortage of it. And you know, so he could have gone to work straight away, but he can't. I think he's working in a supermarket or yeah. something. I'm, I'm... And that is just so wrong. No, you're right. There is there is an issue with um it, it's kind of in terms of, of refugees that a, a lot of the and i know they're not refugees are they refugees no i think there's another word for them I don't um, know uh so it, in terms of kind of arriving here there's an equivalency that can be given so you could show your certification your your degree your, mm. your you know medical degree your electrical qualification, anything you like. And there's an equivalency that's done internationally between these qualifications and whether they meet the UK ones, or whether you need to do a top-up course. So particularly with nursing, sometimes you have to do an additional yes, you do. little yeah. touch of, of kind of, you know, bring you up to the NHS standard. But you don't start at the beginning. So there is an equivalency in terms of experience and qualifications that you can do. Unfortunately, you know, and I don't think this necessarily applies, but when you have new people arriving from, you know, war-torn countries, often you know they come with nothing and they've had to leave in the middle of the night and often you know they haven't had time to to pack or to bring anything and you know they can't 
applied to the university or the the kind of centre that they went to for a duplicate certificate because that will tell people mm -hmm. where they are. So they mm -hmm. can't apply for, you know, those certificates. But there's then no recognition at all. There's no fast kind of track, kind of, you know, what, what have you done before? What can we do to get this person, you know, practicing mm -hmm. their profession here swiftly? No, instead, we'll, we'll allow them to do manual work that is, you know, completely, well, wasteful of, of their experience and their resource. Um, but but there we are. So, yeah, I think we've, we've covered... David Cameron, Cameron. <laughs> um, and, and, and the rest some. of the world. Um, and well, you know, he's foreign secretary. So some of this, you mm. know, will will fall at his door. Not quite as much as it will um, James Cleverly as, as Home Secretary. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I can only hope that perhaps David Cameron perhaps makes the party slightly more centralist because I don't think anyone at the moment wants to see any major party jolting towards the right or jolting towards the left no. by all accounts you know we, i think the more centralist in my humble opinion um in my humble apolitical opinion um you know i would like to see more kind of centralist politics and, and more coalition work and you know we may end up with another coalition next year who knows who knows well we'll just have to watch this space and hope that he does things fairly quickly to get things back on track and just because this is a local government podcast, I guess we should, I know. should, we should touch on <laughs> we local should talk government. about local government. Um, but we've run out of time, so no local government for this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we, we, we have also seen the appointment of um, a councillor as local government minister, um, given that, you know, we, we've covered previously, there's been a talk of vexatious FOI requests from organisations that rep represent local government officers. Um, we've seen the Office for Local Government created and go through a bit of a turbulent patch with no one quite understanding what they do and the Local Government Association being completely, um, well, I think completely against what they're doing through duplication is is kind of, I think, a reasonably fair um, analysis of it. So do you think it's i mean you don't necessarily have a health secretary who's been a, a doctor you don't have a transport secretary that's done anything other than drive a car um, you don't have often defense secretaries with any kind of military experience at all um do you think it's a good thing for us to have a local government minister who has actually got some experience in local government of course it is but I, I i've said it so many times before i think that we should have um those positions covered it should by be, be by people in experience who um you know who would be happy to take up that challenge but um most definitely it, it needs to be somebody who who is understanding of the situation and it's you know i just don't see how I think it's fantastic that you know that there should be somebody who understands the situation. Yeah, I, I think having experience at local government level at the moment is probably a is probably a good thing. Um, I think there's plenty of talk within, um, and and I'm not going to use the full title of the department, which I think is the Department for Leveling Up Housing in Communities, the yeah. longest title um, yeah. of a department in the free world. Um, I think um, his name's Simon Hall, and I think he was previously a 
um, Conservative Council on West Oxfordshire from, from memory um, before he was elected for North Dorset. So he's, you know, come with some experience at, at some sizable local authorities. I think he was also on the mm. county council. Um, and hopefully he will bring some of that experience. Hopefully he won't have enjoyed going out on wet nights and will think that, you know, remote meetings are a wonderful idea. Um, but kind <laughs> but, of, sorry. No, I was just going to say, well, I've told you so many times before, this is how it should be. You know, they should have that experience before they move on to the next levels and on to the next levels. There's lots of people in... in um, the first level of local government that would like to then go go all the way through the system and be chosen as an MP, you know, to, to be as, you know, put forward as an MP. So there's lots of people out there and that's how it should be because otherwise how on earth could you possibly know what's happening in local government if you've had no experience? I don't know of any MPs that attend any of the, the district or the county council meetings just to you know just to sit in the background and just to see how it works i'm not sure whether there might be just one in the in in norwich um who who might um he might attend sometimes the the county county meetings um just as an observer and i think that's what they should do you know as as a district councillor you should attend town or parish council meetings and see what's being said in the local um, facilities and then as a county councillor and there are a lot of people that are um, both county councillors and, and district councillors so there, there's a bit more knowledge on that side of things but then to then move on from county to, to being an MP I think is 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 excellent I think that's how um, you know you, you'll have a lot more um, knowledge going through it that way as opposed to be somebody who puts his name on a list um who qualifies to put his name on a list and um and then be put forward as a as an mp is is that's i think this that's a much better way of doing things yeah i i the only i was going to actually end it there and I was going to let you have the final word, but then I thought I'm just going to you chip have in to my have two the last word, um, which is how times I, have changed. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's I think it's good for um, MPs to bring their own experience into Parliament. I think otherwise it'd be incredibly boring if everyone was a career politician. I therefore think having experience in local government, going into local government, gives you a kind of a, a rounded experience as to how it feels on the ground and perhaps. You know, that, that's a really important part for local government. Obviously, it's part of a much larger department. Um, so, you know, local government is, is just one aspect. However, I do also think that you need to have that independence from it um, to be able to sometimes make a logical decision. So sometimes you can be too close to something that you therefore don't have any experience that's any different to the other people in, for example, within the NHS. If you are an NHS doctor that's become an MP that then goes back to be health secretary and you're basically always within that kind of slipstream of medical professionals who all think pretty much the same about everything. No one's ever going to challenge the status quo. But if you have, you know, a, a business expert go in and someone who has no, run successfully no, businesses. No, 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 no. no. Oh, don't, well, I just don't know. And I think that's the problem 
with the NHS at the moment, just taking that one up, is that um, there are too many people who are coming in and seeing it as a business. It's it that's up, business. It, it, the, the business is up is for the accountants to you know to, to to work it out when you've got management over um a surgical team and it's a it's a person who's there purely for the finances purely to make the figures work that does not work you you have to you need to see it from the the surgical side and from the patient side you you, you can't sit and say oh all those people are sitting on the waiting list waiting for a hip replacement or a knee replacement or something like that um finance that you know that that's going to cost us a lot of money to 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 put them through that operation but hang on it's not life-threatening and it's not um you know they don't need a new heart they don't need new kidneys anything like that it's you know it's just a hip replacement but the quality of life that those people are having because an accountant is saying that's an operation we can't afford to do at the moment because the figures don't say it. Well, that, so you know, but it isn't about patients. Like I, I thought, it, it's not about like, you know, hip replacements, etc. It's about all the ancillary stuff. It, it's about like you know the cost of drugs. It's like the 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 cost of of running the hospitals, the maintenance contracts, the the you know, um, what was it? The, yep. I, I I forget the term that it was that that built the hospitals in the first place. The PFI contracts. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Um, so it, it's about managing all of those things, and they have a much bigger impact on health kind of spending than you know actual operations. And you'll probably find that you can free yourself up for far more operations if you get some of the basic you know business decisions made which i think was half the issue during covid was they didn't have any idea at all about business they were just making all these random and i mean they even bought like you know, we, we talk about this they even bought like stuff for covid which isn't even suitable for humans yeah. but they just bought anything that they could get their hands on where there's no business with that but there wasn't there wasn't it. but that wasn't a doctor doing that that wasn't a medical person doing that no but that it was, was a scientist was telling a government officer or um a, no they, it it wasn't it was the scientists telling the ministers what was needed and the ministers went out and bought it the ministers didn't come to the doctors the scientists and the ministers were talking they didn't come to the doctors and say okay what do you think is i think best? the chief medical officer was involved in that. I, th I think it was actually just low-level bureaucrats making these decisions which they would never have been empowered to do if you had someone competent other than matt hancock as um as secretary <laughs> no, of state no, for no. Health. I, I beg to differ and if well, you if you I don't care if you, you beg to differ because I've got the stop button. So there. <laughs> no, no, no. just let me just let me just let me have oh, two okay. two more minutes. Just two more minutes. So on the on the finance side of things and the medical side of things, up at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, they built don't a specific... name it. Don't play. Yeah, name I'm going it. to because no, you know... Well, that's going to take a lot of beeping out certain names so that we don't get sued. So thank you for that. <laughs> I promise you. It is oh, I promise you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll wait for the court case. Thank you for listening to the Standing Orders podcast by Politis.